My guest today is Dr. George Ede, who is a Harvard-trained, board-certified psychiatrist based in Northampton, Massachusetts. Her interest in nutrition arose after discovering a new way of eating that reversed several bewildering health problems she had developed in her early 40s. And it led her into a speciality in nutritional and metabolic psychiatry, which we are going to explore. And her passion is empowering people with psychiatric conditions to reduce or eliminate the need for medications by changing how they eat. But which changes are worth making and why? That's both the subject of her book, Change Your Diet, Change Your Mind, and the subject of today's podcast. Georgia, thank you very much for coming on my podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I really love your book, uh, which focuses on the tremendous value of a low-carb diet for mental health and reverses many mental health problems and dispels a lot of diet myths. The honest truth is I get a lot, a lot of books to read and don't tend to learn much, but already my highlighter pen is going furiously over your uh, brilliant book, which is out today. How long have you been in psychiatric practice and what have you seen change over that time, both in the kinds of mental health problems, but also their prevalence and also the mindset about the treatment of psychiatric problems? Wow, what great questions. Um, so I've been a psychiatrist for 25 years. And for the first 10 years of my of my practice, I practiced conventionally, you know, with uh, psychotherapy and medications. Uh, and then I, I, I changed my own practice, as you alluded to, to focus uh, now exclusively on, on, on nutritional interventions. But uh, I've seen a lot change, I think, especially in the past five years. Uh, well, let me rephrase that. I think maybe in the past 10 years, there's been a new focus about 10 years ago, a new focus on what's called nutritional psychiatry, where uh, people are, you know, various thought leaders in the field are recommending changes to the diet uh, to focus more on whole foods. For example, Mediterranean style diets in particular have become uh, much better studied in the field of psychiatry and, you know, looking at the, the nutritional root causes of psychiatric illnesses was not something that I was taught anything about. And so that that movement in about the, in the past 10 years or so has been led uh, um, spearheaded really by Professor Felice Jacka um, in, in Australia. And that's grown significantly over the past 10 years. And then really the past five years or so, I would say, um, we now have an even newer subspecialty of psychiatry called metabolic psychiatry, which, um, uh, and that term was coined by uh, Dr. Shivani Sethi at Stanford. And, and that really focuses on uh, how the brain makes energy and, and how you can use specific diets, specifically ketogenic diets uh, to help to re-energize the brain. And, and the, the thought, the thinking there is that some, uh, some of the root causes of mental health concerns have to do with uh, with difficulty with the difficulty that the brain has making energy, and if you if you follow certain dietary changes, you can actually uh, in a lot of cases re-energize the brain, and so that's that has a lot of potential. Yeah, I would absolutely love to go into that, and I'll tell you a story about the um, aforementioned Mediterranean diet because back in the eighties, when everyone was big on the glycemic index of foods the speed of the release of the sugar. 
I realized that this isn't great because, of course, you could eat a lot of a food that releases its sugar slowly or a little of a food that releases its sugar fast. So uh, we really had to factor in quantity, and that is glycemic load, the speed of release multiplied by the amount. And of course, when the keto world really started to take off, everyone was talking about eating, you know, whatever, 30 grams of carbohydrates or 50 grams of carbohydrates. But again, I thought this could be bad carbs, you know, or it could be good carbs. So anyway, <laughs> I, I worked out that if you got down to 40 GLs, so this is not ketogenic, but it does really work. We get people losing about a stone or 14 pounds um, a month. Uh, it would be good. And I went on telly. This is, uh, you know, turn of the century, so to speak, um, saying type 2 diabetes can be reversed. And this was a radical statement. And uh, mm. we had someone, they'd given me somebody who was diabetic and eight weeks later, they were not diabetic. And and I was explaining to the doctor on the telly that they'd gone on a very specific 40 GL diet. And she said, no, it's just the Mediterranean diet, just the Mediterranean diet. But I, and then I looked it up and there are seven countries in Europe who have a higher rate of obesity in men than America. And one of them is Greece. Wow. So, uh, you know, what's your take on the Mediterranean diet or has it been a sort of catch all for something that sounds healthy, but may not actually be quite as good as we think? <laughs> so well, that's fascinating. The, the statistics about Greece, I wasn't aware of that. Um, yeah. So uh, the my take on the Mediterranean diet is that, well, first of all, it's it's poorly defined, but many diets are poorly defined. But the Mediterranean diet is if you if you depending on how you define it it is healthier than the so-called standard western diet or standard american diet that we all now or most of us now eat uh, so it is healthier than that because it does discourage uh, uh a lot of the uh, junk foods and processed foods and refined carbohydrates but it doesn't it doesn't in my opinion go far enough and, and in terms of you're really targeting some of the nutritional root causes of mental health problems. And these, you know, include not just nutrient deficiencies, but also, uh, you know, uh, brain, brain metabolism, the inability of the brain or the difficulty the brain has uh, in many cases uh, with uh, properly or uh, using glucose to its full capacity, really burning sugar for energy. So the majority of us now have something called insulin resistance. And if you have insulin resistance or difficulty, your know, metabolic dysfunction, uh, a Mediterranean diet is just going to be far too high in carbohydrates of all kinds, including refined carbohydrates like flour, um, you know, to be, to be healthy for people with insulin resistance. So I think the Mediterranean diet is a step in the right direction, but I think it really doesn't go nearly far enough for the, for the majority of us. So the idea is you eat too much sugar, refined foods, glucose, your body produces insulin. Insulin is the fat storing hormone. I think right now, uh, with our 60,000 miles of arteries, I'm going to have or should have three teaspoons or 3.5 grams of sugar in my whole system, just 3.5 grams, less than a teaspoon of glucose. So the minute there's more, which is incredibly easy, a can of Coke will give you 10. Insulin mm -hmm. is going to drive that uh, into storage as fat. And then what happens is the insulin receptors become deaf from all this overuse. And then what happens in the brain once you've developed this insulin resistance? Yeah, so that, that's such a great way of describing it, Patrick. So 
the, uh, the, what happens with the brain over time is that if you're bombarding your system with too much glucose, that you then need too much insulin to manage that glucose. So every time you get a glucose spike in your bloodstream, you're getting a big insulin spike in your bloodstream to manage that glucose. And that works for many years <laughs> until it doesn't. But the but that high insulin level that you need to squirrel away all that glucose into fat, as you, as you so nicely put it, um, if you, uh, all that insulin that you're needing to manage that glucose, you're bombarding the receptors on the surface of your blood brain barrier, the insulin receptors on the surface of your, of your brain that, uh, that are required to escort insulin to the brain. And so the more, like you said, those insulin receptors can start to become deaf from overuse. And, you know, the more you, the more you bombard them with insulin, the, the less well they work. And so it becomes harder and harder over time for insulin to cross into the brain. The glucose still crosses in, no questions asked. There's not a problem there. It's that uh, the insulin has a harder and harder time crossing in. And that's a huge problem because the brain can't process glucose properly to full capacity without adequate insulin. So now what you've got is a brain that's swimming in plenty of glucose and, and yet still starving to death because it, it can't utilize that glucose to full capacity. Yeah. And, you know, we, if you, to, to be diagnosed with diabetes, you measure the glycosylated hemoglobin or the sugar coated or the sugar damaged red blood cells. So you can understand that having a lot of glucose in your brain is going to cause damage anyway. And the energy factories are starved of glucose. So the irony of eating too much sugar is you end up being starved of sugar in the brain. And that was uh, one of our guests a couple of months ago is Professor Stephen Kinane. Mm -hmm. You know his work and he was his original study was in people with pre-dementia or mild cognitive impairment. And he was able to show that their glucose energy production in the brain was, was very depressed. And uh, what he did was to give them C8 oil. Maybe you'll talk a little bit about that. Actually gave C8 a little bit of C10. Not everyone will know what I'm talking about here. And uh, he said, next time I'll just do C8 oil. And the body can make ketones from that. And he measured no change in the glucose energy produced in the brain, but a 230% increase in energy produced from ketones. And it mapped or mirrored improvements in memory executive function. In other words, their brains come back to life. So help me unpack that, because obviously we've got two fuels for the brain. One is glucose, a bit messed up for many people, and the other <laughs> is ketones. Tell me about this. I just really like the way you explained that. So so yeah, the as 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 uh Professor Stephen Cunane, whose whose work is really so important in the field, um, as he has so nicely put it, the brain is a hybrid engine and it can burn, uh, it really works best when it's burning a mixture of fuels, when it's burning uh, glucose and ketones. And so yes, the brain can run 100% on glucose if that's the way you feed your body, if you're sort of eating carbohydrates frequently throughout the day, then, then your brain will be running entirely on glucose and uh, the brain can do that, but it's a little messier and a little riskier to, you know, to have those glucose spikes in your brain, especially if you're eating the refined carbohydrates that give you big glucose spikes in the blood sugar as well as in the brain. So as you were saying uh, that, you know, when the, when the brain glucose is too high, that's damaging to the, to the brain. So, so you could feed yourself that way. 
but really uh, what the brain, the brain works better uh, if it's running on a mixture of glucose and ketones, uh, or at least, it's, at least if it's not running on glucose 24 seven, which is actually very difficult for it to do anyway, because overnight you will start to run out of glucose. It only lasts a few hours. And, and so uh, overnight your body and brain will try to switch over to ketones if you stop eating for long enough. And so really what, um, uh, what, what Professor Kunain has showed in that experiment you were just describing is that you know, if the brain has trouble burning glucose, which is now a problem for the majority of us with insulin resistance, because the more insulin resistant you are, the harder it is for your brain to burn glucose, you really need to, to you pick up the slack with ketones and ketones can bridge that gap between uh, in the areas of the brain that are having trouble burning glucose. So, so if you, if you bridge that gap with ketones, now you can pull, like you said, sort of bring the brain back to life and sort of pull various systems back online that may have been kind of sputtering along or kind of limping along uh, because they, they couldn't use glucose to full capacity. So now you've got this nice system that's, you know, kind of back online where glucose is being used where it's needed because it is needed in certain areas of the brain, but ketones are really uh, doing a lot of the heavy lifting. So now your brain can sort of wake up again. And we see this all the time in clinical practice. Now, yeah, and he, he described it as filling the energy gap. And, you know, he said on the London Underground, it says mind the gap. And in these people, there is this energy gap, so they can't think straight. It's filling the gap. So there are various ways of doing it. And you are the expert on this. I mean, you could fast, which means you burn your body fat. You could stop eating carbs and eat some more high fat. You could take this C8 oil, which is usually from coconut oil. Coconut oil is only 7% of this carbon-8, which is caprylic acid triglyceride. You could do that. And then there are shots you can have. You can have actually pure ketones, ketone esters, ketone salts, and so on. So, yeah, what, what would you say? I mean, do you use C8? Do you use ketone esters or salts, or do you just avoid carbohydrates? Uh, I use all of those strategies depending on the person and the situation. Uh, the Really, the cornerstone of my approach is a ketogenic diet. Uh, I do sometimes use supplements like uh, MCT oil, as specifically, as you said, quite correctly, the C8, the caprylic acid form is that's the form re really what, what these, what these uh, supplements do is um, uh, these sort of MCT oil, medium chain triglycerides. Uh, what they, what medium chain triglycerides really do is they're, 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 you know, fats are pretty long molecules, the fats that are in food, but the C8 is a shorter molecule. So it just, it's a little faster and easier for the body to turn it into ketones. And so uh, you can use MCT oil, you can use ketone esters, you can use ketone salts uh, to boost your ketone levels. Um, but all of those supplements, uh, they, they have a pretty short life in the bloodstream. So you have to take them fairly often and mm -hmm. they can really run into some, in the case of the ketone uh, supplements, they can run into some serious money because uh, they are expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and with the MCT oil, there's a limit to how much people can tolerate because they can cause some gastrointestinal distress. So really what I like to do whenever possible is use those either as a short-term strategy, sort of help people, you know, as they're transitioning to a low carb diet, ketogenic diet, or, um, you know, use them to boost, you know, to, for people who can't follow a diet, 
uh, uh, you know, as, a, as, a, as strictly as I might like them to, to mm -hmm. use them as a, as a supplement to, to support the ketogenic diet. But the reason why I like the ketogenic diet best is because if you, if you follow a ketogenic diet, your body will naturally produce these ketones, uh, 24 seven, uh, for free. And so then you've got around the clock uh, ketone support for your brain health and, and the rest of your body as well, will be running more on fat and less on sugar. And we all, most of us anyway, want to be burning more fat. So that's why I like that as a strategy as opposed to the supplements, but I, I do use the supplements sometimes, of course. Now, before going into you know, serious mental illness and how to use a ketogenic diet to you know, accelerate recovery, uh, just generally, uh, I read a book called The Hybrid Diet with uh, Jerome Byrne, who's very, very pro a sort of keto approach. And I kind of challenged him to a duel in a way. He said, well, hybrid, we can run on carbs, low GL, of course, or we can run on ketones. So the book was kind of a challenge. And when we got towards the end of it, where we got really fascinated was the idea that possibly we should be switching. So there are tribes in the world, uh, in Kenya, for example, Lake Takana, we have, um, you know, the El Molo tribe, and they, they're always ketogenic. So there are examples of, of uh, populations that are always ketogenic. And you also talk in your book, something we may talk a bit more about, how you can switch the body into a self-repair mode called autophagy, which requires a little bit more than just ketogenic. So do you think we should always be ketogenic or do you think there is a merit in you know switching backwards and forwards a little bit and do you think that we should always be an autophagy or do you think that's something that we should do every now and again what's your where you got to in the thinking around that well this is such a good question uh so i think in, in part the question depends on who you are and mm -hmm. so i think if you you know if you've already had a significant amount of damage to your metabolism you may need to be in ketosis all the time in order to fuel your brain uh, adequately. This but is like if, if you've messed up your insulin receptors, you've been diabetic for a few years and so on. Exactly. So uh, so we know that there's a lot more metabolic flexibility, for example, in, in, in children and young people as opposed to older people, depending on how we've been taking care of ourselves. And so, uh, you know, we see a lot more metabolic flexibility in, in, in children. So for example, um, in the, in studies of epilepsy, uh, the ketogenic diet's been studied in epilepsy for over a hundred years now, and uh, primarily almost entirely in children for, for many decades and now in adults as well. But, you know, children are very metabolically flexible. And so they can go back and forth between burning mostly fat for energy and burning mostly sugar for energy. And, and that really is the way that the body is designed to be able to switch back and forth, depending on what food is available to the, to the person. So, um, so in any case, the ketogenic diet, um, uh, for example, to treat children with, with, uh, epilepsy is sometimes only needed for a year or two. And then enough brain healing appears to occur that that child can then switch back to, uh, hopefully a healthy, healthy whole foods diet that includes, you know, a decent amount of carbohydrate. They don't need to stay ketogenic forever. I see this fairly infrequently in the adults that I work with most adults. And I, I, we can't be sure we don't have enough research, but it appears that adults are 
many adults anyway are less metabolically flexible. They've lost some of that ability to adequately, robustly, uh, and in a very healthy way, burn 100%, uh, you know, to spend a hundred, you know, to, to be able to fuel their bodies and brains entirely with glucose. And so uh, this is the more, I think the more insulin resistant you are and the more damage you've done to your metabolism, the harder it may be to switch back and forth comfortably and safely, especially if you have a serious condition, say, you know, like bipolar disorder or Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, it's, I've been running at my farm in Wales, uh, Forest Bond Retreat. We've been running these, uh, it's, it's a seven day retreat actually, but it's a five day fasting mimicking diet. Mm. Um, but kind of a Rolls Royce version of that. Uh, Professor Walter Longo was the man who really put that approach. Uh, and what we're trying to do is around 800 calories a day. It's definitely ketogenic. It's almost vegan, uh, but there is a reason for that, uh, which is to do with meat and dairy can actually switch off this self-repair process. I want to ask you if you think this is true, uh, which is called autophagy. So the idea here is the body has a sort of normal growth mode. But if you fast completely, you can go into a self-repair mode where you start to recycle all those damaged energy factories, mitochondria, and you get a chance to rebuild. This is the explanation that's given for some of the sort of miracles that have occurred in fasting. So what we're trying to do here is switch people rapidly into the autophagy process um, for five days, and then they, they gently come out of that. And people who've done this, the more times they've done it, the quicker they go into ketosis. Uh, but a lot of ketogenic diets have a lot of meat, and I know you're pretty meat, you know, favoring in your book and dairy products. Um, but what do you think about them and the problem in relation to autophagy? And do you think going into autophagy is something that we should do sort of every now and again, rather than all the time, so to speak? Yeah, uh, I won't be able to fully answer your question because I, you know, I don't, uh, I, I think there are some, some areas here where I, I really don't know. There are some limits to my knowledge in this capacity. So I'll just acknowledge that. But I think that um, the, the way I look at it anyway, is that, um, well, a few things. One is uh, I am very much in favor of a diet that includes meat, but I'm not in favor of a diet that includes dairy um, for a lot of reasons. Um, the other is I'm not in favor of a diet that includes too much meat. And so uh, I think that, you know, if you, if you, you can overeat anything and if you overeat meat, that also will not be healthy and, and will, you know, uh, you know, uh, keep your insulin levels too high and, and not allow you to energize your body or brain maximally or allow you to go in and out of autophagy. And I do think this is this is the limits of my knowledge really are around autophagy here. And mm -hmm. so I'll just say that I don't know whether one wants to be in autophagy mode all the time or just intermittently. So I will leave that to you to to um you know to to educate me about. But uh, I do know that um, that if you are eating properly and you're not eating too much, that you're able to go at least in and out of ketosis, especially at night, overnight when you're sleeping. Uh, if you're not eating so much carbohydrate that that you're that you easily shift into ketosis at least overnight, that you are allowing those healing that that healing phase to take place, that that autophagy to take place, and whether you're doing that using a ketogenic diet that includes meat. Or whether you're using whether you're doing that using a ketogenic diet that's 
plant-based or even vegan, or whether you're doing that with a with calorie restriction, which is um, uh, Dr. Walter Longo's program is both, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of plant-based and calorie restricted. Regardless of how you're doing it, it's a good phase to enter on a regular basis. And so I think there are, there are, there are pluses uh, all around here, regardless of which strategy you'd like to use. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about, you know, fasting or having a break, it obviously reminds me of an 18-6 diet where, for example, you have dinner at six or seven o'clock and then you don't have lunch or maybe brunch until six or seven o'clock. So you get this period of time you know, where the glucose drops and the ketones start to go up. And one of my guests uh, two months ago also was the brilliant uh, Professor Thomas Seafried. Oh, yeah. And uh, he's had such amazing results with cancer. And, and the essence of his message is all cancer cells feed on glucose and also glutamine. You, you can't deprive someone of glutamine because it's essential, but there is actually a drug that blocks its use in cancer cells, but you can deprive people of glucose. And one of the things that we measure when we put people into an autophagy diet is the ratio between glucose and ketones. And for those who are not used to it, you know, your blood sugar is probably normally hovering around five and you may eat some food and it might go up to eight. And if you're, you know, if you're sort of consistently above six and certainly at 10, you know, this is bad news like diabetes. And if you fast, it may come down to four, you know, that, that kind of level less easy if you're insulin resistant of course and then ketones generally for most people are at zero but as you start to you know fast not eat carbs eat fats they'll creep up to one two three possibly even four and he says to get into a sort of cancer killing zone which we can really say is an autophagy zone as well uh, you've got to get to a gki of two glucose to ketone index of two glucose of four ketones of two, glucose of five, ketones of 2.5. Do you have a sort of sense in relation to the brain and mental health? Do you, you know, do you play around with this glucose ketone index? Do you use ketone measures like the breath tests? Uh, uh, you know, and obviously you can measure in the blood as well. How do we get precise yeah. on this? You know? Yeah, no, fantastic. So uh, we're still learning about this in psychiatry, the, the sort of metabolic psychiatry uh, you know, so the, the use of, for example, ketogenic diets and fasting and other types of metabolic interventions for uh, mental illnesses and, uh, and, and for even, even for garden variety issues such as, you know, uh, mild depression, ADHD, anxiety, et cetera. Uh, we're still learning, uh, you know, whether, you know, whether ketosis is necessary and if so, how deep do the, does that ketosis need to be? How high do the ketones need to be? How low does the glucose need to be? So the research is starting to uncover this, uh, but it's very, very early still. So for example, um, the, the work of Dr. Ian Campbell in, in Scotland um, he, at the University of Edinburgh, uh, he just uh, published some brand new data showing that there seem, when he, uh, uh, he, he focuses uh, his work on bipolar disorder, and uh, what he noticed in his pilot study was that people with bipolar disorder, that the higher their ketones were, um, you know, the the better the better uh, their mood seemed to be, and so uh, there seems to be at least in certain conditions a strong connection between how strict the diet is and how ketogenic it is, and and results. We don't see this at least it's really too early for us to know whether this is always required. 
uh, whether higher ketones are always uh, uh, necessary. But you know, at least in my work and my clinical work, I've found that it really varies a lot. So I think it depends on the person. It depends on the nature of the condition that they're struggling with, uh, how long they've had it, and all kinds of other factors. But it does seem to be that um, it does seem as though, at least for some conditions, the degree of ketosis, you know, the sort of how high the ketone levels are, may mm. make a difference in in some in some conditions and in some people. What's the sort of range you're talking about? You know, because as Thomas Seafried, he was quite precise. He said, you know, it seems that you only really can get an effect if you get to that GKI of two, um, you know, in his area. So you're looking for ketones is one, two, three. I know it's obviously different for different people, but, you know, when do you say to a, a, a patient of yours who's, you know, great, you've got ketones at three, keep it there. Oh, such a good question. So uh, in, in my clinical work, and I've worked with a few hundred patients at this point um, in, in, my, in my practice, uh, it really varies quite a bit. But what I, what I do is I ask people when they're first starting a ketogenic diet to aim for ketone levels, blood ketone levels using a blood meter is what I usually uh, will use, um, between 1.0 and 3.0 millimole. Okay. And uh, now some people may need higher than 1.0 to mm. get results, but others uh, don't even need to reach 1.0 millimole. Uh, I think it really varies a lot depending on what the underlying cause of the condition is. So for some people, for example, just getting the glucose levels stable and normal is all they need to do to experience relief from whatever condition it is they're suffering with. For others, the ketone levels really matter uh, right down to the, you know, uh, I have some patients who say, I only feel well when I'm between say 1.5 and 2.5 millimolar ketone range. And others say that doesn't matter at all, as long as they're, you know, as long as they're not eating the sugar and they're keeping their glucose levels under control, they don't, they don't seem to need, uh, you know, a decent level of ketones uh, in their blood. It really, at least in my experience has varied quite a bit depending on the person, how old they are, how metabolically flexible they are, what kind of condition they're dealing with. And so, but at least we know from the early research that's come out from, uh, from Dr. Ian Campbell is that the ketone level may matter. The degree of ketosis may matter in people with bipolar disorder. Okay, that's interesting. And when you say, some people say, you know, I, I notice the effects only when I get my ketones to whatever, to let's say, as an example. What effects do people notice when ketones start to function in the brain? Yeah, so it, it varies with the, you know, whatever the condition the person is, uh, you know, dealing with, of course. But so one of the, some of the phrases that I hear most often are mental clarity. Mm -hmm. uh, another phrase I hear fairly often is peaceful, sort of calm and peaceful. Um, and people uh, uh, are freed of their obsession with food. They're, they feel like their appetite is well-controlled and they can think about other things. They can eat le naturally eat less often. They can concentrate better and their mood is more stable. Uh, and this is, we, we, and we really see this really across the board, um, whether it's attention uh, deficit disorder, depression, anxiety, there's kind of a calm focused energy that the brain feels more stable, the brain, uh, the, the people feel more focused uh, and they feel more productive 
and less distracted by uh, by thoughts of food. So a lot of benefits um, that people will notice really sometimes within even just a few days. So it is it is a pretty powerful intervention for a lot of people. Now, uh, Dr. David Unwin and I go back a very long way, and he kind of got turned on to the whole GL concept, which he called teaspoons of sugar equivalent through this. And I, I knew that we could reverse type 2 diabetes with a low GL diet, also with a ketogenic diet. And I started to realize, actually, that a low glycemic load diet, which might say, you know, you can have a bit of bread, but it's got to be like pumpernickel or sonnenbrot or oatcakes, was a bit like saying to an alcoholic, you can have three glasses of wine a week. And some people become so addicted to carbs, it's actually better if they just almost demonize them, you know, in order to keep them on the straight and narrow. So it brings me to the sharp end of the practicalities of this, because I used to work in in uh, mainly with schizophrenics. And uh, my take on it, they were on heavy duty chemical straight jackets, you know, called tranquilizers or mood stabilizers. As a consequence, they really couldn't function. As a consequence, I believe um, they smoked like chimneys. They had strong tea, strong coffee, lots of sugar, lots of stimulants to try and get them kick started. And even the idea of small changes uh, in one place, I suggested that we put the smoking room at the top and the tea and coffee and the kettle at the bottom. So at least we're getting a lot of exercise. But, but to be honest, often with these people I was working with, I could give them some supplements that made a real difference. Um, I'm a student of the late Dr. Abram Hoffer and uh, all those wonderful B vitamins and so on. But changing the diet was really, really tricky. So how do you go about getting somebody, you know, with a serious mental illness like schizophrenia, uh, or bipolar, you know, at, at a sort of more extreme level, um, onto a ketogenic diet. Practically, what are the steps in that direction? Because it's, you know, it takes a few days before you start to feel good, doesn't it? It yes, in fact, it can take a few weeks in some cases, and uh, and in on, on, in very unusual cases, can take even several months, and so that's very very challenging. In fact, I'm working with somebody right now. Uh, who uh, has uh, bipolar disorder and uh, with some with some psychotic features. And uh, this person, even after two more than two months now on a ketogenic diet is still not responding. Now, that doesn't mean that she wouldn't if we kept going or and it doesn't it doesn't mean that she would if we kept going. We don't know unless we unless we keep trying. But uh, I would say that that's an unusual case. In most cases, uh, what what we see is that if people are able to transition onto a ketogenic diet kind of gradually to make it sort of less uh, less uh, metabolically traumatic, so to speak. So for example, um, when you're transitioning to a ketogenic diet, if you try to do it very abruptly, that can be a bit of a shock to the system and can actually make people feel worse before they feel better. So we try to, at least I uh, try to, and many of my colleagues do try to ease people onto it gradually. And that way you have a lot less issues with um, the kind of shock to the system. And uh, so for example, there are uh, Beth Zupekania, who's an uh, expert dietitian in ketogenic diets in the United States, she transitions people uh, one meal at a time. So she'll start getting people used to a, a low carb ketogenic breakfast. And once they're used to that, they switch over their lunch and then dinner. And that's a lot less of a shock to the, to the brain and body than diving headfirst into ketosis from, you know, a, a diet that 
typically might have two to 300 grams of carbohydrate in it per day down to, you know, 20 grams per day or so. So, so easing into it is nice. Um, and I think, um, you know, I think that, uh, that, that helps a lot. Uh, it helps people learn the diet more easily and, and have a lot fewer side effects uh, as they're adjusting to the diet. Sorry, is this what you call your quiet keto? Ah, so quiet keto is a little different. So um, what I was just talking about was kind of the how fast you go and how fast you switch from a regular diet to a keto diet can make a difference. So if you ease yourself into it, that will be a lot more comfortable, uh, less of a shock to the brain and body. But then there's also this quiet keto. Uh, so what I what I like to do with 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 my folks, especially if they if I sense that they have a lot of food sensitivities, uh, a lot of gut damage, um, you know that sort of thing. Uh, that um, if they're really sensitive people, I like to use what I call a quiet ketogenic diet, which not only is ketogenic, so you know switches them you know, switches their main source of fuel from sugar to to ketones and fat, but but also um, kind of takes out some of the foods that are that some people have a lot of sensitivities to, and that can um, that can be stressful on the system. And so these may include things, for example, like uh, you know of course the the grains and legumes, but also uh, you know things like nightshades. Uh, for example, and cassava root, things that can, uh, that, that, that are, that are challenging uh, to the nervous system, uh, even whether they have carbohydrates and whether they have a significant amount of carbohydrate in them or not. So there are different ways that you can approach this diet, depending on the person It can be really tailored and individualized to them. But if we're talking about just a standard kind of garden variety ketogenic diet, really the main goal is getting uh, switching the main source of energy in the body from glucose to fat. And it's not that it switches entirely over, you still will always need some glucose, but it's basically switching most of your systems over to a more fat-based and less glucose-based uh, metabolism. What are those fats you like to use? Because of course, you know, we've got things like avocado, we've got coconut oil, which you can saute things in. A lot of keto diets are very rich in cheese and butter. And I know you said you're not a fan of dairy. I usually say I'm 65. I'm still breastfeeding from another species of animal. Do you, do you think I'm weird? <laughs> that's <Okay>. that's great. <laughs> what, fats, what fats do you like to include? We have already understand there's some meat in there. No doubt there's some oily fish and so on. But how do you increase the fats? Never mind leaving out the carbs. We understand that. How do you increase the fats? And why are you down on dairy? Oh, okay. So, uh, so uh, fats from any whole, any non-dairy whole plant or animal food. Uh, so, for example, fats from fats from meat, fats from fish, fats from eggs, uh, fats from whole plant foods. Uh, so, for example, like you said, avocados and olives and those sorts of things. So, really, fats uh, even from nuts and coconut, if if you tolerate if you tolerate fats from nuts and coconut and seeds. But what we we don't want is, of course, the refined seed oils, things like a canola oil and sunflower oil and all of those bottled oils are uh, really highly industrialized. Um, uh, highly refined and uh, and can pose a lot of problems for the brain and body. But really, any any source of fat that's from a whole food um, and that hasn't been industrially refined 
Uh, and in my opinion, also, I would have, as you pointed out, I like to caution people about dairy and dairy fat, uh, which we can come to in a minute if you like. But essentially what we want is fats from whole foods um, uh, to meet the person's energy requirements. So this could be fat from, uh, this could be fat from an avocado, this could be fat from a coconut, this could be fat from, from an egg or from a piece of beef or, or, from, a, or from a fatty fish. Uh, it really can come from any whole plant or animal food, as long as it's not industrially refined seed oils, which are unfortunately making their way into all, all of our foods now. Yeah, I often do this 18-6, but what happens in the morning is I have a small shot of coffee. I have some carb-free almond milk. I have a blob of almond butter, which is virtually carb-free. Uh, I have a tablespoon of CA oil. I have a little bit of raw, I mean, cacao, no sugar, and cinnamon, and I whiz it all up, and it's called my hybrid latte. Wow. I, it, my, it doesn't take me out of ketosis at all definitely gives me an energy boost and it makes it very easy to get you know those 18 hours of of uh, of doing nothing so it's just uh kind of it's just what i do sometimes but the dairy thing is interesting i'm actually a dairy allergic and uh it you know we know that there are no mammals that consume milk even their own species milk past that you know initial infant growth exactly. <laughs> so um why are you down on dairy oh exactly i'm, I'm uh it's so interesting what uh, the what you were just discussing yes um so i'm down on dairy for a variety of reasons and you know one is exactly as you said it's just unnatural for for mammals to consume milk beyond beyond the, the age that they're supposed to wean from milk we are supposed to grow up and eat solid food so i think that that's a really important message uh and and so the problem with dairy products that there are many problems so the one is one is that's the dairy from the wrong species uh so you know we're not intended ever to to be you know nourishing ourselves with cow's milk uh cow's milk is intended to grow a cow, which is a completely different species. So the amount of protein and all the other molecules uh, uh, and in that in that growth formula is they're not intended for us. And so that can cause a variety of problems for people, including allergies and sensitivities, um, but also um, raising insulin and other growth factor levels beyond what they should be for a human, because you know, a cow is a much larger animal and requires a, a very different growth formula. So these are just growth formulas. They're rapid growth formulas. Milk milk is a rapid growth formula for a mammal. So do we really want to be in, in rapid growth mode all the time for our entire lives? And do we want to be growing, uh, do we want to be consuming the growth formula from a much larger species? And so I think there, you know, there are some problems with that. And, and so, and what we end up seeing is we see a lot of, you know, allergies and intolerances to dairy products. Uh, and we see, you know, um, uh, you know, we really are kind of, what we're doing with dairy products is we're trying to, we're, we're essentially telling our hormonal systems to keep us in growth mode all mm -hmm. the time. This is a growth formula and yeah. we're not supposed to growing all the time <laughs> no it's, it's the opposite of autophagy and you mentioned you know the species because obviously a cow is a herbivore and i'm so glad in your book to read about cholesterol and the absolutely brilliantly awful experiment in 1913 of annie choff who feeds <laughs> rabbits who are herbivores cholesterol and gets manages to block their arteries of course because herbivores have no process for that 
<laughs> exactly. And I don't know. I mean, and you said that twenty percent of the cholesterol in in the body is in the brain. It's absolutely vital. It's actually a sort of um, in the, in the neuronal membrane. You've got DHA omega three, which is bound to phospholipids, and every whatever it is, eighth or tenth, you know, thing you've got, you've got a packer, which is cholesterol. So I was fascinated to read a study which said the two best biomarkers for predicting dementia are on the one hand, a low cholesterol, once it's below four units in the, in the UK measure, uh, which you'd probably only be at if you were taking statins and didn't need to be. And the other was a high level of homocysteine. And I wanted to ask you about the homocysteine because I must admit, in the last few months, I've done a lot of interviews of people from Harvard. I'm not sure why that is. You know, <laughs> sorry to hear that. Uma <laughs> Devi uh, Nedu with her wonderful book on, uh, you know, on on mood and anxiety, and we have uh, Chris Palmer as well. I'm sure you know him well with his brilliant book Brain Energy, and and you. And what's really kind of amazed me is that everyone's in a metabolic psychiatry metabolism. And one of the most fundamental processes in the body happening a billion times every few seconds is methylation, mm. uh, which is driven by B vitamins, B6, B12, and folate. It's absolutely vital. Uh, it is on the on the best uh, meta-analysis, uh, which was, I think, 396 studies. It's the most evidence-based treatment for dementia. Uh, that is lowering homocysteine, which is the marker of faulty methylation with, with B vitamins. And recently, I'm not sure if you've seen it, the genius paper by uh, Professor David Smith and Professor Helga Refsom, who really put homocysteine on the map, that it's a biomarker for over 100 diseases. And you're really looking at just about everything, you know, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, bipolar, depression, ADHD, autism, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, and so on. But you don't seem to mention it much in your book. What's what's your you know what's going on with homocysteine? Is it a blank spot? It has certainly been very well researched. Thirty thousand studies, twenty nine thousand studies to date on homocysteine. Oh, absolutely. Now I, I don't mean to. Uh, it, it's not that I don't think it's important. It's that the book is really focused on the book is the book is really focused on ketogenic diets and mm -hmm. nutritional sort of, how do I put this, sort of yeah. nutritional and metabolic quality of the diet as opposed to uh, supplementation or, uh, you know, other, other aspects of mental health, other root causes of mental health problems. So I do not mean at all to say that there aren't other root causes that could be, that could benefit from supplementation, for example. I absolutely agree with that. But what I wanted to focus in the book on was the overall nutritional quality of the diet uh, to maximize nutrients coming from food, minimize toxins and other kinds of uh, uh, problematic uh, 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 metabolic dysfunction coming from food and show people how they could help to re-energize their brain by improving right. the metabolic right. quality of the diet. So I, so I don't mean at all to say that the other things aren't important. It's just that that wasn't the focus of this particular book. Do you measure homocysteine in your patients? I mean, the point, the, the critical point about this is so many people, um, especially older people, uh, malabsorb vitamin B12. And you can eat all the meat and fish and eggs and milk because it's only in animal food. And still, you can't get that B12 up and the homocysteine down. So I just wonder if 
whether it's yeah. uh, is it being measured by psychiatrists in America? Do you measure it? What's the what's oh my the... goodness? I I I I completely agree with you. So I I absolutely do measure it, and especially as we get older, it becomes harder and harder to absorb and maintain our our B twelve levels with with age because so many different. It's a, such a multi step process getting you know absorbing that B twelve and utilizing it properly, and so yes, I do measure it. And, and I do think it's very, very important. And as you, as you rightly say, you can't always get it uh, from food, especially if some of these systems have been worn down over time or if you have certain diseases. So I think it's really, really important. Um, so uh, you cannot always correct a B12 deficiency with diet alone. That's where I like to start, but that's not always where you have to finish. So sometimes you do require absolutely supplementation and other types of interventions. So yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, I, I always, whenever possible, take a food first approach and then supplement later. And, and, and supplementation is still sometimes required even with the healthiest of diets. I agree. Eggs, let's talk about eggs. We mentioned cholesterol. And, uh, you know, of course, a lot of people have been avoiding eggs because they think they'll get too much cholesterol. But I, I want cholesterol. I think it's a really essential nutrient. So, yeah, what's your take on eggs? Yeah. So unless you're allergic to them or, you, they, or they bother you in some way, they're close to a perfect food. I mean, they are missing a couple of things. You're going to, you, you know, you, you won't, you, you won't, for example, get vitamin C from an egg. You And uh, um, it's very difficult to get iron from an egg especially, uh, but, uh, but you, but it really otherwise is, a, is close to a perfect food and, you know, with lovely ratios of plenty of cholesterol, uh, lovely fat protein ratio, uh, virtually no carbohydrate. It's really a, and, and packed with nutrients. So especially if you cook the egg. So I think that eggs are, are come very close to, a, to being a perfect food. Well, um, I guess it depends on the chicken because I'm, you know, very fussy about the eggs. I mean, I've, I'm just about to get my own chickens and uh, they're going to have a very natural diet. And I, I also want to give them a little bit more omega-3 foods, which are in the leaves of cold climate plants and so on. And they're in the grubs and all the rest of it. So. Yeah, I'm a fan of eggs, but I'm really not a fan of battery chickens. The, the conditions are atrocious and the nutrition in the egg must suffer a lot, I'm sure. But eggs, I'm, we're I'm, on the same page on eggs, it sounds like. I'm sure you're right about that. I mean, it's it's always better, you know, obviously we want to eat, if we're eating animal foods, we want to eat healthy animal foods, animals, uh, you know, animal foods that are from animals that are healthy. And, you know, the way so many of our animals are raised um, uh, right now is just, you know, is suboptimal to say the least for the animal and for, for people who are deriving nutrition from those animals. I think it's really, uh, a terrible trend in terms of industrialized animal food production is atrocious. Now I noticed, uh, you've got three different, uh, diets and there's a quiet paleo, quiet keto and quiet carnivore. I want to talk about the carnivore thing because one of our sort of hardest hitting, a genius guest was Professor Michael Crawford, and he was the mm. man who discovered that all brains of all animals, without exception, are uh, the most predominant essential fat is DHA, omega-3, and arachidonic acid, omega-6. And you make that very, very clear in your book, too. But he makes a very compelling case that there is absolutely no way that 
we could have become Homo sapiens with our brain size increasing from that of a chimpanzee around 350 cc up to what was between 1600 and 1700 cc about 30,000 years ago and is now reduced to 1330 cc. We've had a 20% drop in brain size, which is measured on cranial capacity in the last 30 years, uh, 30,000 years, which is a drop in the ocean of evolution. But he he makes a compelling case. There is absolutely no way that we could have become Homo sapiens without two components. One, a very high marine food diet, which gives you that omega-3 DHA, gives you the phospholipids, choline and so on, which are in mussels and oysters and fish and also eggs. It gives you the B12, gives you the iodine, gives you the minerals and so on, but also a plant-based diet because it's the omega-6 that makes the arachidonic acid. And you need that omega-6 and you need the omega-3. But but nowhere in that story was the need for a carnivore diet as such. So I'm always intrigued because I've been in lots of debates where on one side is the plant-based diet and the other side is the carnivore diet. And I wonder, well, why isn't there a fishivore diet? You know, if we're going to just eat meat, wouldn't it be better to just eat fish? Uh, I don't have a problem with that. I really think that um, uh, when I when I use the term meat, I'm talking about the meat of any animal, including fish, mm-hmm. and that I do. I, I it's it's quite clear. It's abundantly clear that we that we are we evolved to require animal source nutrients. We evolved to require animal foods in the diet, whether you eat fish or beef or chicken or whatever type of animal food you choose, um, you know, there are some pluses and minuses to the, to the choices you may make, but there's no question that we evolved to require animal source nutrients in our diet. So would it be optimal to have most or all of those nutrients come from the sea, from seafood? Uh, I don't know. Um, but I think that, I mean, I haven't looked at that, to, to really fully, you know, to be able to make a compelling argument for your listeners about that. But uh, I, I think that, I, I think that what's, what's more important or, 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 what, or what's important to think about is what ratio of, of sea creatures to land-based creatures is ideal or optimal for the human, for, mm-hmm. for human brain function and for human development. And I honestly do not know the answer to that question. So could you, for example, could you, for example, uh, build a beautiful brain and maintain a beautiful brain without eating any ocean creatures at all? I don't know. I haven't looked at that question, but I guess that's, is that, is that sort of what, uh, what you would say that, I mean, it's actually actually coming out because the dha you know the omega-3 starts off as alpha linolenic acid which is what we get in chia and flax but to convert it down into epa which is anti-inflammatory and then dha takes a lot of work a lot of energy uh, and you can't really do it and uh, i you know animals that are are only meat animals like cats lions etc never manage to develop a brain size much bigger than about 400 or 450 grams or cc's and animals like a cat have out they can't actually turn that alpha linolenic acid in seeds into dha you can't your eyes do not work without dha 
So they outsourced it to the rabbits. They eat the rabbits. They've got to eat the herbivores. They, you know, you cannot have a vegan cat. You'll kill it. Simple as that. Right. <laughs> what they love is fish. So it's that fish and particularly the oily fish that is by far the richest source of DHA. And I was looking at analyses. Actually, the richest source of all for DHA is caviar. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. No, yeah, that's absolutely top. So I think we, we do need, you know, the supply of DHA. And what's happened recently is that there have been a number of studies that have shown that the level of omega-3 DHA, or they, we call it also the omega-3 index, actually correlates with both brain size in terms of shrinkage of the brain, gray matter, white matter, and cognitive function very exquisitely. And in fact, my um, guest before last was uh, Bill Harris, Professor Bill Harris, and he developed the omega-3 index test, which measures the red cell EPA and DHA as a percentage of total fats. And again, the reason I had him on was a big study, which again showed that it's that omega-3 status that absolutely predicts dementia risk, Alzheimer's risk, cognitive function, brain size, and so on. So it seems to be pretty consistent that the more omega-3 you get, the, the better you function in that way, which is kind. Of, I mean, personally, I, I don't eat meat. I didn't eat meat for 45 years. Um, now I would say I, I eat, I mean, when I may say meat, I mean, you know, not fish, uh, oh, right. maybe once a month. But I very purposefully want to get three servings of oily fish every week. And I supplement. And talking about that, what happens is the omega-3 index, which is in a percentage, and Bill Harris says above 8% is good. In Japan, they're, they're about 10 or 11%. So they eat a lot of fish, have very high omega-3. The average person's got about 3 or 4%. And he says, you know, you get to 8% is healthy. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. I'd like to see some of this um, paleo carnivore perhaps engage with the idea that actually we evolved along the water's edge. It was always the richest, easiest food. I mean, would you rather go hunting an animal and maybe succeed or just pick up oysters, mussels, crabs, lobsters, you know, fish caught in pools? It's probably what the women ate. And it's the women that count because it's the women that make the next generation. Well, I think the other the other piece, I, I uh, there's so there's so much to agree with in what you said, but the other piece of the puzzle I think is important is how much omega six we're flooding our systems with, because I think that really competes, you know, in the pathways, uh, you know, in terms of the, um, you know, creating these longer chain fatty acids, and so the more omega six you get, uh, the more in your diet, which is coming now almost, you know, from for so many of us is uh, we're basically flooding our systems with omega-6 with seed oils, with, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and so in a very high omega-6 environment like that, you're gonna need even more omega-3 than you might otherwise need. And so that's a monkey wrench to be wrestled with as well. So I think that, um, uh, you know, I think we do absolutely need omega-3 in our in our diets and healthy sources of them and rich sources of them. I, I absolutely agree. The question is, and I and I haven't looked at this as closely as you have, so I will just admit that I, there's a limit to my knowledge here, um, which there just is, of course, about any topic. There's always a limit to knowledge. But I think that um, how much omega-3 would we need if we were eating the proper amount of omega-6? And I'm not sure, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. Yeah. No, I mean, 
everything's a balance and there's so much to learn and i we've come to the end of our the time that we have for our wonderful discussion i want to say that your book is one of the very very few books that i've been given to review uh where i'm learning a lot i mean you really explain things very very well and i think anyone interested in um optimal health anyone interested in brain function anyone interested in reversing uh, mental disorders and preventing them as well needs to learn the bit about the role of ketones and your book uh, change your diet change your mind um, out today is absolutely excellent very easy to read highly informative and i want to recommend everybody to uh, order a copy and give it a good read any parting words you'd like to make before we close well, just that I really appreciate uh, this interview because I've done a lot of interviews and I I, I don't think I've ever, uh, I really mean this quite honestly, um, I don't think I've ever had as rich a discussion or as informed a discussion about these topics as I have with you. And so I really, really appreciate that depth of knowledge and that breadth of knowledge and challenging, really pushing the the pushing me to the limits of my knowledge where it makes me think after the interview, I need to learn more about this particular area because um, this is exactly the kind of interview that 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 I enjoy doing. So thank you very much for for asking th these questions and uh, you know um, and and challenging the limits of the knowledge here, and I think there's much more we all need to learn. Uh, and I and I hope that the book is really helpful to people. So I I really appreciate you sharing this information with your listeners. Thank you very much. So the book is Change Your Diet, Change Your Mind by Dr. Georgia Ede. Get yourself a copy. Thank you very much.